This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. Open your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 9. Mark 9. We're talking this morning about connecting our inadequacy to our God's adequacy. Mark chapter 9, we saw in the first 13 verses of chapter 9 that on the, the mountain, Jesus was transfigured. He became, his clothes became just a, a radiant white, and, and we saw the, the glory that Jesus had, had possessed from before the foundation of the world just shining through on the mountain. And now we're going to see what happens when he and Peter and James and John come down. There's an incident that occurs that, that really shows us our own inadequacy and God's adequacy and, and how we can connect our inadequacy to his adequacy. Let's look at it together. Mark 9 and beginning with verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the Spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it is often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. 
Let's pray together. Father, we come before you now in, in prayer. And we ask that you would speak to us now through your precious word. We pray that your spirit would open the eyes of our hearts to perceive the truth that you have for us from your word and that you would use your truth and the power of your spirit to renew our minds. Speak to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Alan Redpath tells a story about a South African businessman who purchased a a Rolls-Royce. And he was so impressed by the performance of this car that he wanted to know more about the intricacies of the motor and so forth. And so uh, he wanted to know the exact uh, horsepower, which was something that the Rolls-Royce company did not typically reveal. And so he went to his local dealer there in South Africa, and he said, do you know the exact horsepower of the car? And the dealer said, you know what, they don't even tell us that. And so this businessman wrote to the Rolls-Royce company directly in Derby, England, inquiring about the horsepower of this motor. And he received, a few weeks later, a very, a very dignified response in the mail from the Rolls-Royce company, and it just said this, the horsepower of a Rolls-Royce is adequate. We're talking today about the adequacy of God and our inadequacy, and specifically, how do we connect those two things? We see, first of all, in this text, the reality of our inadequacy. Now, I don't know if you've ever had the experience of maybe going, on, going to a Christian retreat or maybe going to a Christian conference or something, and, you know, you have this wonderful time, and it's kind of a, a spiritual mountaintop experience for you, and you come back and just almost immediately you're hit in the face with something that just sort of is the epitome of all of the brokenness of the world that we live in. That's kind of what is happening here. Because Jesus and Peter and James and John are literally coming down from the mountaintop where Jesus has been transfigured before them. He's had this conversation. Moses and Elijah have appeared and Jesus has had this conversation with with them, and they've had this amazing experience, and they come down the mountain, and immediately uh, they're hit with something that just shows all of the, uh, the sin and the brokenness and the dysfunction of the world that we live in. So what exactly is happening here? They come down the mountain, and uh, Jesus sees a commotion and these, these people are arguing with one another. There are the nine remaining disciples who had not gone up on the mountain with him. And then there's the crowd. The scribes are there. And they're, they're, just, they're, they're agitated, knowing the, sort of a, a Middle Eastern crowd. Uh, you would imagine they were animated. Uh, they were kind of up in each other's faces and so forth, and lots of gesturing. Uh, they're arguing. They're agitated. And so Jesus asks, you know, what is, what is going on? And it's at this point 
that we first meet the dad in this story in, in, in verses 17 and 18. And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. The affliction that this boy is dealing with seems to have been some form of a very severe form of epilepsy. In fact, in Matthew's account of this, he specifically uses the term for epilepsy. But it was more than that. Because there was a demonic element that was involved in this. There is a demon who is using the epilepsy as sort of a front and a tool to torture this boy. And so the father says to Jesus, I brought him to you. But of course Jesus was, was not there. He had been up on the mountain. He says, I brought him to, uh, to you to, to, uh, to heal. And you weren't here. And so uh, I asked your disciples to cast out the demon. But they were not able. Now this is interesting because earlier in Mark, you remember in chapter 6, we saw that Jesus had given authority to the disciples to do this very thing, to cast out demons. And so we, we see in chapter 6 and verse 7, He called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And then just a few verses later, in verse 13, it says they cast out many demons. And so... This was something that they had done before with some success. What is the problem now? Well, we see the problem in verse 29. Jesus says to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So the problem here was prayerlessness. Prayerlessness. Tim Keller says this, the disciples are trying to exercise a demon, but they have been trying to exercise it without praying. How arrogant, how clueless they are about their inadequacy to deal with the evil and suffering of the world. The disciples tried prayerless exorcism for the same reason they couldn't understand why Jesus had to die. They didn't see how weak and proud they were. They underestimated the power of evil in the world and in themselves. And so there's an element here of, of overconfidence. You know, they, they, they cast out demons before. Uh, we, they think, they're thinking, hey, we, we've got this. And instead of depending on God, they're allowing self-reliance. To, to creep in. Now we can get a couple of takeaways from this. The first one is this. We have way too much confidence in our strength. I was talking with a pastor from New England and he was telling me about 
uh, another pastor in that area that had had gotten into sexual sin and lost his ministry and and he said you know I was just in conversation with him a few months before this happened and he made the statement to me that the one area that I don't think Satan could ever get to me in would be uh, sexual morality. You know, the, the moment that we begin to think that we, we've, we've got a handle on something ourselves and we begin to deal with something in, in our own strength, we begin to deal with, with life in our own strength, it's when we're set up for a fall. And that's the case not only morally, but it's also the case as we seek to minister to other people as these disciples are seeking to do here. It's so easy, especially if we've done things before, you know, to begin to think that, well, I can, I can just do this now um, on my own without depending on God. William Lane says this, they had to learn that their previous success in expelling demons provided no guarantee of continued power. Rather, the power of God must be asked for on each occasion in radical reliance upon His ability alone. I love that phrase, radical reliance. We need to cultivate a radical reliance on God. So, not only do we have way too much confidence in our strength, but second, second takeaway from this, we have way too little awareness of our pride. You know, truly humble people don't think of themselves as humble. <laughs> truly humble people, are, they have a self-awareness, a very deep self-awareness of their, their tendency to be prideful. Because pride is something that is so deeply ingrained in all of us. It is right at the, the heart of our sinful nature. It's pride. And it's something that we all battle. And it's something that we all need to be very, very self-aware of. And, and you see, pride leads to prayerlessness. Why? Because when we're prideful... We don't think we need to depend upon God, and so therefore we don't pray as much. Why is it that, you know, 1 Thessalonians 5.17, which says pray without ceasing, why is it that that seems so unnatural to us? It seems so unnatural to us because it's not natural for us to, to, to have a radical reliance upon God moment by moment. If we were radically relying upon God moment by moment, then, then unceasing prayer would be sort of the natural outflow of that. So the recognition of our own inadequacy drives us to a radical reliance upon God, and a radical reliance upon God drives us to prayer. So we see, first of all here, the reality of our inadequacy. The second thing that we see is the result of admitting our inadequacy. If we can get to the point where we admit our inadequacy, then we open our lives up for all kinds of good things spiritually. Let's look at verse 19. 
And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Now, in the original, the the expression here that Jesus uses is something that is very close to heartbreak. Between the pitiful condition of this boy, the the desperation of this dad, the pride and the prayerlessness of his own disciples, the opposition of the scribes, and the lostness of the crowd, Jesus here is, is experiencing something that is just very, very close to heartbreak. His heart is breaking. And we see in verse 20 that they brought the boy to him. And when the Spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Now, we have seen time and time again in Mark that the moment that the demons who are inhabiting various people, the moment that that a demon sees Jesus... He is absolutely terrified. The demons are terrified whenever Jesus approaches. They know exactly who he is, and they, they, they are trembling whenever Jesus gets close to them. And so when this demon sees Jesus, the demon knows that his days are numbered. He knows that his days of torturing this boy are quickly coming to an end and so the, the moment that he sees Jesus, he, he, he gets in one last violent convulsion on this, this boy. You know, and we, see, we see something like this today. Whenever Jesus gets near, demonic powers go crazy. You know, this is this is why um, in in certain people groups uh, overseas that have been in spiritual darkness for centuries, or in some cases millennia, they have been in, in, in just abject spiritual darkness, and then the gospel begins to penetrate. Jesus shows up in this area among this people group. People start getting saved. People who have been in darkness for, 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 for centuries are coming to Christ. And, 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 and d- demonic powers go crazy. Okay, this, and this is why. The, the, as you see the persecution of believers in places like North Africa and the Middle East, this is part of what's going on. It's Satan getting in just, just, just one last violent convulsion. You know, we see the same phenomenon. Whenever God begins to work in somebody's life, C.S. Lewis's classic book, The Screwtape Letters, is, is, is the basis of the book is that at the beginning of the book, a young man becomes a Christian. But he's a, he's a, he's a young Christian. He's a baby Christian. And so these two demons are writing back and forth about how they can... Uh, trip him up and, and, and wreak havoc. Because God has be- began, begun to work in his life. This is what the enemy does. 
Okay, whenever, whenever Jesus shows up and he begins to work among a, a group of people or, or in a life or in a church or whatever, you can count on an uptick of demonic activity and some, some, some last violent convulsions because Satan knows that his time is, is short, but he's getting in just a, just a few last tormenting licks. And, and that's, that's what's happening here. Um, verse 21 and Jesus asked his father how long has this been happening to him now we see here once again the tenderness and the compassion of Jesus his question to the father is one of deep deep compassion and concern he He's entering into this, this father's pain. And there, there's, no, there's no pain like the pain of parents who have children who are suffering or uh, have lost children. It's about as bad as, as, as human pain gets. And Jesus here, in asking this question, he's entering into the, the pain of this father and giving him an opportunity to share his heart, what's been going on. I recently watched a, a historical documentary, and it was about something that happened almost 53 years ago, September 15, 1963, in Birmingham, Alabama. There were four little girls who were sitting in their Sunday school class getting ready to learn about Jesus when a bomb that the Ku Klux Klan had planted in their Sunday school classroom went off and it killed these four little girls, tore their bodies apart, and of course tore their, whole, their poor parents apart emotionally. And what just got to me the most about this particular film were the interviews with these parents. And as a father myself, just, just seeing the pain of these parents. There are barely words to describe it. And Jesus here sees the pain of this father and he's, he's entering into it. He's entering into the, the pain and suffering that he's seen here in this father and son. One of the most compelling things about Christianity is that we have a God who understands pain. In fact, we have a God not only who understands pain, but who has entered into our pain. We have a God who has not only entered into our pain, but a God who became a human being and took our pain and suffering on Himself. Jesus understands suffering because on the cross He suffered like no one has ever suffered. In Christianity, we have a God who understands what it's like to lose a child to a violent and an unjust death. And so we have a message to, to offer to people who suffer. 
And whatever your source of pain or burden is today, friend, I can promise you this. Jesus understands. Because he's been there. He did not stay distant. He did not stay remote from us. At the heart of the gospel is the fact that he, he came to us. Let's look at verses 21 and 22 again. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Now, this gives us even more insight into what's been going on. First of all, we see it's been going on for years this has been happening over a number of years to this boy. And then we, we see here, as we've seen before in Mark, the, the modus operandi of demons is to destroy human life. To, to destroy the image of God in people. And so these demons have been trying to, to, to hurl this boy into fire to burn him into water to drown him. We saw in chapter 5 with the demon-possessed man there that the, the man was cutting himself with stones. And so what demons are all about is the destruction of human life. And when you look at our culture today, when you look at some of the enslaving addictions that we see in our culture, like the opioid epidemic, that's, ha that's just an epidemic uh, in um, America, just more drug overdoses happening uh, in America than, than, than have just in, you know, in, 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 in generations. When you look at something like uh, that kind of an, an addiction where lives are just torn apart, where, where people just become a shell of themselves, when you look at something like pornography, with just an enslaving addiction that just, just takes apart lives and marriages and families, just, just piece by piece. Listen, these things, the drug industry, the pornography industry, these things are shot through with demonic power. That's what people are dealing with. Verse 23. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. The Father has just said in verse 22, If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus responds, if you can. In other words, Jesus here is lovingly challenging this dad. And he is saying to him, essentially, listen, I can assure you, this does not rest on my ability to cast out this demon. This rests on your ability to believe that I can do it. Verse 24, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Now there is something that is so refreshing about this because it's so authentic. The father is being real. 
He's, he's admitting his, his, his inadequacy. Unlike a lot of the other people that were standing around, the father here is, is admitting his own inadequacy. He's saying, I, I, I believe, but I'm struggling. My faith is not what it should be. There's something just so refreshingly honest and candid about that. And, 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 and Jesus, Jesus loves that. You know, James Edwards says this. He, he says, true faith is always aware of how small and inadequate it is. The father becomes a believer not when he amasses a sufficient quantum of faith, but when he risks everything on what little faith he has, when he yields his insufficiency to the true sufficiency of Jesus. Jesus tells us in Matthew 17, 20, For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. You God forbid that this should ever happen, but but imagine that you fell off a cliff and you're you're hurtling downward through the air and you you look out the corner of your eye and you see a limb sticking out of the face of the cliff. And just instinctively you reach out and you grab hold of the limb and you find out that it is strong and it holds you and it saves you. Let me ask you something. Was your salvation due to the strength of your faith or the strength of the limb? It was the strength of the limb that saved you. And see, what's being taught here is that when, when you place your faith, even if it's frail faith, and a strong Savior, you find that He is mighty to save. When we take just a step of faith, even if it's a wobbling step toward Jesus, we find that He is running toward us. Let's look at verses 25 through 27. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Now this is so beautiful here, because the, the words... In verse 27, when it says that he lifted him up and he arose, those are resurrection words. Those are the same words that are used in Greek for resurrection. The same words that are going to be used later on in this gospel for resurrection. And that is so appropriate. Because that's exactly where Jesus is headed. You know, right after this, he and the disciples are going to leave Caesarea Philippi and head south back to Galilee. They're never going to come this far north again. Immediately, right after this, 
they head south down to Galilee, and they don't stay in Galilee very long. They just basically pass through Galilee, and they are headed towards Jerusalem, where a cross and an empty tomb await. And, and you know, I, I think that part of what is happening here, and we didn't get a chance to talk about this last week when we looked at the transfiguration, but I think part of what was happening on the Mount of Transfiguration as Jesus, the glory of Jesus just shines through and he's having this remarkable conversation with Moses and Elijah, I think part of what is happening there is that Jesus is being strengthened for what lies ahead in the not very distant future. And when you think about it, what happens on the Mount of Transfiguration, and what happens when Jesus comes down from the mountain is in a way like a picture of the gospel. And it shows us how much Jesus gave up to come and rescue us. I mean, think about it. So what, what, what's, what's just happened on the mountain? Glory! The glory of Jesus shines through and you remember we talked about last week, this was not new glory. This was the glory that Jesus had known from before the foundation of the world at the Father's right hand in heaven. It shows us how much He gave up to save us. How much He laid aside to come to this earth and be born as a baby and die on a cross for us. Because Jesus, the glory that we saw on the Mount of Transfiguration, that had been His glory all along. And what happens on the mountain? He experiences His glory shines through, and He comes down the mountain, and immediately he is, he is hit in the face by the brokenness and sin of this world and demonic power and the unbelief and the pride of people. He, he comes down from this transcendent experience on the mountain to confront all of this, all of our junk. And that, in a small way, shows us is a picture of what ha Jesus did for us in a, in a much larger way. Because He didn't just come down from a mountain, He came down from heaven. <laughs> he, 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 instead of, as Philippians 2 says, instead of holding on and trying to grasp at the glory that was His, He, he, he laid that aside, came to us to rescue us, took the, took the, the, the likeness of, of a man, of a servant, and died on the cross for us so that we could one day experience the glory. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for this picture of, of the gospel. We thank you that you loved us so much that you came to us, that you entered into the brokenness and dysfunction and evil of this world 
and that you took evil upon yourself on the cross and triumphed over it and defeated it through your resurrection from the dead. As we just continue to reflect before the Lord, I would ask you today, do you know this Jesus? He loved you so much that He came for you. He died for you. He rose that you might be reconciled to God and have life. We are inadequate. We cannot deal with our sin problem on our own. Jesus dealt with it in our place. And forgiveness and new life and eternal life can be yours if you will turn to Jesus. Repent. That means turn from. Turn from yourself. Turn from your sin. Turn to Jesus and trust in Him alone and His accomplishment for you. Trust that He died for your sins, that He rose from the dead, that He reigns today as Lord. Trust Him and follow Him. So Father, speak now to our hearts by the power of your Spirit. There is work that you desire to do in lives. Would you do your work now? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we stand together and sing, if you're here today and God's speaking to you about following Jesus, you say, I want to follow Him. I want to know more about what it means to follow Him. We want to invite you to come. If you're here today and God's speaking to you and say, I want to be a part of this church family, we would love to come alongside and talk with you about that. If there's a need in your life prayer, we would love to be able to pray with you. Let's stand together as we sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine, Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father. You are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to Him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where His love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. 
I'd, I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you to come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I can help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together. Thank you.